So Jacob is leaving this tragedy at Shechem, which we read in Genesis 34. And I wanted to just bring up two um, more aspects from that. Uh, Jacob's sons were, this is just straight into type, typological uh, readings here. Jacob's sons were unwilling to let the Gentiles have the covenant woman, uh, Dinah. We may think of Dinah as uh, the kingdom. Uh, this uh, anticipates the ushering in of the kingdom of Christ, where the sons of Jacob, the Israelites in the first century, also did not want the Gentiles to have the kingdom. It was theirs. The Shechemites became Israelites in their circumcision. They became brothers to Jacob's sons, and then Jacob's sons murdered their brothers, much like Cain murdering Abel. And like the first century sons of Jacob murdered Christians. So I think a lot of that is anticipated in the Shechem massacre. Uh, also, Jacob is often maligned for remaining silent so often. And we did touch on this, that this is uh, something a father will do when his daughter is making a vow to consent to the vow. Um, but I, I, I believe Jacob was leading well. And another aspect of his remaining silence was that he gave his sons opportunity to lead, to see what they would do in their negotiations with the Shechemites. He was growing them up in maturity. Uh, instead, of instead of monopolizing the negotiations, he allowed his sons to negotiate. And this is uh, similar as the heavenly father sat in silence and allowed his son, Adam, to name the animals. He, he wanted to see what he would name them. Um, so Jacob is not failing to act, but growing future leaders, giving his sons the ability to negotiate, to make uh, decisions, and to name the Shechemites Israelites. That's what they were doing. That's what they had agreed to. That's what his son said in front of Jacob to uh, the Shechemites, and then later they treacherously murder and pillage Shechem. So you have Dinah defiled, and then you have the sons defiled through this whole disaster that was Shechem. It's another fall. And what happens next? It's the same thing that happens every time there's a fall. God begins the work of restoration with his people. He speaks to his children. He seeks them out. Um, and he begins this process of restoring them. What does he say to Jacob? He says, arise, go to Bethel. This is right after the Shechem tragedy. He says, go to Bethel, the same place God appeared to you when you fled your brother Esau uh, to build an altar. Notice that God is speaking and he says, go to the place that God appeared to you. There's, uh, I think, likely Trinitarian whispers here. You have God the Father speaking to Jacob uh, uh, through the Spirit. And then you have him saying, go to the place where God appeared to you, which was, is likely the second person of the Trinity, the image of the invisible God. Jacob responds by turning around to his family and calling on them to uh, repent and to purify themselves. We're going to the house of God. We must approach God in purity. Put away the foreign gods and purify yourselves. Jacob is acting like a priest here. This is what the Levitical priests do when they approach God's house. They purify themselves. They clean themselves. And that's what Jacob is doing here. It's the same purpose. 
And notice Jacob responds promptly. He responds in obedience, and in contrast to his sons, he kills the things that needed to die, which were the foreign gods in his household. They must be forfeit, and so they hide them under the tree of uh, Shechem. The word there is not the usual one for bury, but it's usually a word used uh, for, for hide or to hide something. And perhaps that may have been intentional so as not to think that they were giving honor to the burial of the, of the idols in the same way that they're giving honor to Isaac or Rachel and burying them with the hope of resurrection. Um, but hiding them is often associated with covering up sins. Uh, like Adam and Eve, covering, hiding their, their sins. And so perhaps that's uh, why that was chosen there. And that's what they did. They, they, the sins of Jacob's family are hidden under the tree at Shechem. And we went over the, the, the symbolism of that. Okay, uh, so they put away the foreign gods in their hands, it says. And then they put away the earrings that were in their ears. And I think uh, this is likely connected with, with the foreign gods. We see this throughout Scripture in Exodus, uh, in Exodus from Egypt, the children of Israel, they make the golden calf out of, out of their earrings. Um, after Gideon's victory over the Midianites, the children of Israel, at Gideon's request, take the earrings of the plunder and they make an ephod. And this ephod is likely a vestment or some kind of ornament. It says Israel played the harlot with it. Um, and it was a snare to uh, Gideon's household. So we have this connection between idolatry and the earrings. Uh, throughout scripture. Uh, in the law, we also have, um, if a slave, it comes the time of the slave's release in, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, and he loves his master and he wants to stay in his master's house, his master will take an awl and he will pierce his ear to the door. And uh, that slave will be uh, marked as his master's slave servant for life. And so um, you have this earring idolatry connection and you have this earring or ear piercing master connection. And I think that that's what these earrings represent. If we connect it with the foreign gods and they're their masters, it's idolatry. So burying them, hiding them is saying um, uh, these idols are no longer our masters. And furthermore, that it's the organ of the ear. It's like burying your ear and saying they're no longer our masters, but we're also not going to listen to them anymore. Uh, I think I think uh, those aspects are all significantly um, uh, present in the hiding of the earrings there. Also, uh, the parallel passage. So this happens again. The Shechemite event happens again in the Exodus from Egypt uh, after the heresy at Peor. It's the uh, the, the Midianites um, get destroyed. You have this defiling of a Simeonite with uh, a Midianite woman. God preaches to the people the law, and then he gives them permission to destroy the Midianites. And they go and they do it. Um, and then they screw it up. <laughs> it's another screw up. They do more of it right, but then they screw it up. Does anybody remember how they screw it up? Moses is angry with them when they come back. Anyone remember? They bring back the women that caused them to sin they, as plunder. And uh, Moses says this. He says, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident in Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But keep alive for yourselves all the young girls 
who have not known a man intimately. And then Moses calls on the Israelites to purify themselves, the same language Jacob is using, uh, purify their garments. And anyone who had slain anyone or touched a dead body um, were to purify themselves. It's the same thing. It's the same event that Jacob is dealing with. Uh, and we see this in the law. Anybody uh, who, um, well, this is actually in Leviticus, we have lawful purification rites. Um, uh, or related to lawful acts. When a woman in Leviticus, when a woman lies with a man and there is an omission of semen, uh, they shall bathe in water and be unclean until the evening. Um, and so Dinah was defiled more than just that, because uh, that appears to be a lawful kind of intercourse thing. But she was um, uh, defiled through fornication with, with uh, uh, somebody outside the covenant. And then the men are defiled through the warfare uh, Either, either by lawful warfare or uh, by the treacherous warfare that they had engaged in. And they're, they're, they, they had broke their agreement. Uh, and when Moses calls on them to purify themselves, there's earrings involved in the, in the plunder there as well. And that, those are actually, that plunder is actually given to the temple and used. Um, so, and it's, it appears that they're received. So, um, so that, those are kind of, that's kind of all related there to the earrings. Uh, Jacob also, part of this is changing your garments. Is there another place in Genesis? So we, we have all this, we have it in the law, we have other examples of this, but can we think of anything from, from what we've read in Genesis already where they may have gotten this, that they might be emulating? Yes, exactly. Exactly. I think that that's where this comes from. Uh, they make themselves garments, but God changes their garments. He gives them these animal tunics, which are twofold. There's, it's a form of humiliation. You want to you wanna worship a creature? Well, I'm going to dress you like creatures and dress you like animals. <laughs> and then there's also a blessing aspect because that word is associated with priestly tunics. And it's, it's anticipating you are going to be redeemed. You are going to be priests one day. Um, so... But there's that changing from the fig leaves to the uh, animal garments. And so I think that that is where, likely where this comes from. So Jacob was rightly preparing his household to enter the house of God, Bethel. That's what Bethel means, uh, and worship there. It's significant that God speaks to Jacob after the treachery of Shechem because Jacob had already experienced something like this as a young man. Um, Esau wants to kill Jacob, and Jacob flees the land. And we might be tempted, we might, be, we, we might imagine Jacob tempted to do something similar. What's, what is he afraid of? At the end of Genesis 34, he's saying, you have made me obnoxious to the inhabitants of the land. He says this to his sons, and he says, and now I'm going to die in my household with me. So he's, he's also afraid now that people are coming after him to kill him. He's constantly having people that he thinks are going to kill him. And he may have been tempted to go back to Padan Aram. He may have been tempted to flee the land again, right? It's everybody in this neighborhood hates me now, and now I got to go. Um, he might have thought to himself, I don't like Laban. I hate that guy, but I'm going to go back because at least I was alive. At least I was alive in Padan Aram. Have you brought us out of Egypt to die is what his, his, his 
the, the children of Israel say in their exodus. And I, th- I think that there's probably some kind of temptation here. But God comes and he, um, and he reassures him. And that may have been something that he was struggling with too. My sons have screwed this up and we're out of God's favor. We're out of the covenant. God's going to start over. But that's not what happens. God comes to him and he reassures him. He reassures him. Jacob and his family uh, repent. They purify themselves. Um, after God had, had come to him, reassured him, called him back to his house. He's, he invited him to his house. Bethel, house of God. Come to my house. Have fellowship with me. Um, come and worship me. He's still on speaking terms with God. And he tells him to keep pressing in. Don't flee the land. He doesn't say don't flee the land, but he says go to Bethel, which is, which is staying in the land and pressing in. And so they set off towards Bethel. And you would imagine that Jacob was terrified. It would, it would be like walking through Detroit in the middle of the night or something like that. There's, there's a right fear that you might have that these people are going to destroy you. But what happens? The exact opposite happens. There's a fear and a terror that falls on the Canaanites and they don't touch them. Nobody touches them. So you have royal screw up, repentance. God calls, there's repentance, and then God providentially protects Jacob. He provides a way for him uh, to come back. And this anticipates the terror of God that fell on the Canaanites when Israel had invaded the land later on through the Exodus. We read in Deuteronomy uh, uh, 2, God says this, This very day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon all the nations under heaven. They will hear the reports of you and tremble in anguish because of you. And this is just coming to mind now, but isn't there a place that talks about the fear of that, that animals have fear of man? Is there something like that? Yeah, when uh, we're given permission to eat animals, he says he's going to put the fear of man on the animals. That's right, that's right. So it's dominion, and the animals are constantly representing people. And that's, that is, this is all connected. Joshua 2, Rahab says, I know the Lord has given you the land, that, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord our God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So not only does this fear and terror uh, benefit Israel in their warfare and their acts of dominion, but it creates converts. People see that and they and their God is God. They, there's no denying it. And that's what we see with Rahab. And she goes on and she says, please spare my family. Right. I mean, this is uh, this stuff just like makes my heart leap. Because people don't talk about the church this way, but they used to, right? There used to be that kind of recognition of power. It's tangible. Um, and so right now we are back in the sojourner position, but hopefully we start to see more of this dominion again. And the terror sees, you know, our enemies. 
uh, at the end of uh, Joshua's conquest. Um, they, so they conquer the land. And then we have, a, we have another incident that's very similar to Jacob. They're at Shechem again, and he calls on the people to put away their foreign idols. So you, you see that they had collected up foreign idols in the pogrom of, of Canaan. And then the conquest continues into Judges. And so we can learn a few things from this, from God's reassurance to Jacob in the terror. That even when we sin, this is the first one, even when we sin, the Lord keeps his word. And he calls us to return to him. And he purifies us when we repent. When we turn to him and put to death our sins and our foreign gods. And then number two, not only is God's love steadfast, changing our hearts, inclining them toward holiness, but he can melt the hearts of our enemies. He can cause fear and dread and terror to divinely seize them and stay their wrath against us. He's the God that provides safe passage and delivers us from our enemies, even when we're outnumbered, like Jacob's household was. Okay. Uh, We're told that Jacob arrives at Luz, which means almond tree, and uh, the name of it has changed to Bethel, which means house of God, which is interesting, the tree house of God connection. But uh, this is already communicated to us. When Jacob was first here, it says he arrives at Luz, which is Bethel. And so why are, why are we repeating it? This passage has several other namings and name changes mentioned. God reiterates Jacob's name change to Israel. This had already been told to us as well in the wrestling event where God wrestles with Jacob. But it's mentioned again. Uh, the supplanter, his name supplanter, is changed to wrestler, a wrestler of God. And we're told that Bethlehem used to be called Ephrath. So the place of fruitfulness is uh, turned into the house of bread. And Jacob also names Bethel El Bethel, God, the house of God. It's possible that he might be naming the altar that actually as well. And then the tree that Deborah is buried under is called a weeping tree, the weeping terebinth. And then there was another one that I, I, I noticed when we had read through there. But what I think what I gather from this is that there's a new creation. We had this fall and new creation means new names. And that's really, uh, I I think is what's going on when God creates, he lets Adam name, name the animals, uh, God and his people, uh, rename people and places when new creations, uh, happen. Uh, a newborn child receives, uh, his parents' name, uh, along with a new name of their own. A newlywed bride takes her husband's name, a new covenant, the new covenant Abrahams and Sarahs uh, go from laws to law stones. New covenant Canaans go from Pooter Valley to Gunpowder Valley. And sleeping giant heart rock over here turns to horse tooth rock. When God speaks, when he does new things, new creations are made, new names are attained. Okay. So Jacob arrives at Bethel and he builds an altar as the Lord commanded. God appears to him. He reiterates the promises again. He sets up this pillar. He anoints it. He pours out a drink offering on it. And he calls the place God, the house of God. There's a couple things to note here. The larger pattern of Jacob's life is familiar to us, particularly as it pertains to worship. Because we do the same thing. Jacob goes to the house of God when he's a young man. We go to the house of God. Jacob, or God speaks to Jacob the covenant promises. 
God speaks to us the covenant promises. Jacob performs covenantally symbolic rituals. We perform covenantally symbolic rituals. Jacob is sent out into the world. We are sent out into the world. Jacob comes back to the house of God. We come back to the house of God. Of course, this is Jacob's larger life, and we do this on a weekly basis. But we see this enter the house of God, go out, come back, and the worship that is happening there. We do this every Lord's Day in our covenant renewal worship, but here it's very similar. It's very similar. The other thing to note is that the covenants are being kept. Jacob is keeping his word. He had promised that if you are with me and you provide safe passage for me, you will be my God. It's, it's, a, it's a wild vow when you read it, <laughs> but Jacob's keeping his word. He's, a, he's, a, he's He's letting his yes be yes and his no be no. He's keeping his vow. He's keeping his covenant. And we don't think that these, these things are trifling to us now. We don't think that they matter, but they do matter. Our words matter. Covenants matter. But here we see covenants being kept. Covenant God and a covenant patriarch. We see a similarity to Abraham. One of th This may have been one of the more difficult trials that Jacob had gone through. It's similar to Abraham. Abraham's sacrificing of uh, Isaac. And then after he goes through that trial, God comes to him and he reaffirms him and he repeats the promises and he elaborates on them. One of the things that he adds there on Mount Moriah is that uh, you will possess the gates of your enemies. And here with Jacob, he says, kings will come from your body. And so we have trial obedience connected to dominion. It's right there. It's the promise. And Hebrews tells us they didn't receive the fullness of the promise, but in faith they believed it. This moment is significant to Jacob. He mentions it at the end of his life. At the end of Genesis, we read, Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. It's interesting that he would bring that up to Joseph um, while they're in Egypt. I think he gives the benediction to his children while they're in Egypt. But the last thing to mention here is that God's blessings are Isaac's blessings. Isaac spoke these things to him as well. But that's all Jacob had heard. Um, and God is coming and he's speaking these blessings that God had spoke to Isaac, that God had spoke to Abraham. But now they're being spoke directly by God to Jacob. And this order of life is is what we have. It's uh, it's it's inherent to life. Uh, fathers represent God to their children. And we we hear God's blessings and we hear God's promises from our fathers and as we grow up, we have stronger communion, direct relations with God. Um, and we see something similar here uh, with uh, Jacob. He receives them from his heavenly father. So this is a high point in Jacob's life. We might call it a spiritual high that they're on. Things, they've just gotten saved. God comes and he reaffirms them. He gives them all this encouragement. And it's followed by a lot of grief. 
we have the death of Deborah, we have the death of Rachel, and we have the death of Isaac, and then we also have the, the record of Reuben uh, sleeping with one of Jacob's uh, wives or concubines. And so we'll get into that next time. Let's pray. The charge is this, remember the divine terror. Speaking of the divine terror that seized the land as Jacob passed through it, John Calvin says this, the hearts of men are in the hands of God. God can strengthen those who in themselves are weak. He can also soften the hard-hearted when he pleases. So whenever we see the wicked bent on our destruction so that our hearts will not fail us, let us remember this terror of God by which the rage, however furious, of the whole world may be easily subdued. So as you go back out into the world, into this furious world with rage against you, as you travel in valleys of darkness, as you press on with your mission, remember the divine terror. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and the love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always.